Well, good morning again. Man, I am still just, I'm in that space after that amazing time of just nourishing worship. I'm just in that space, and I just lost all track of the children's blessing. Um, But can I just share how amazing it feels to be here with real-life people? Um, And not to this little sticker on my phone where I used to have to pre-record myself. Um, Those recording weeks were just so rough, and I remember at one point, I was thinking of putting stuffed animals in front of me (laughs) because I feed off the energy of the people in the room. So yeah, I am so glad that I get to talk with real-life people this morning. Um, And a big shout-out to those who are tuning in virtually. Thank you for hanging in there and for attending virtual service so faithfully, even when it's, it's not the same. We see you, and we're glad that we can worship together as a church using the wonders of technology. These last couple of weeks, we've been revisiting the topic of spiritual renewal and recovery, while giving some practical tools to help us manage anxiety and stress. We all experience stress, acute stress, in some form each day. It could be as small as choosing the longest line at the checkout counter at the grocery store, or as big as preparing for a tropical storm like we did this past week. Acute stress, however, it it eventually dies down. It doesn't usually last for more than a month or so. Chronic stress, which Pastor Ted mentioned last Sunday, lingers for much longer. And that's what we're experiencing with COVID and facing the aftermath of being a part of organizations, institutions, family systems, and neighborhoods and communities that have also been impacted and even traumatized by this pandemic. And what we have to realize is that there is a compounded stress and trauma on top of everyday life stress that we experienced even before the pandemic. That's what we're facing today, chronic, compounded stress that we have very little control over, that's unpredictable, and that can feel like there's no end to persevere through. It can be exhausting and overwhelming to have to keep needing to manage it. An ECC pastor said to a group of us pastors not too long ago that if we're not seeing a spiritual director and a counselor therapist each month during these unprecedented times of stress, we are doing violence to our soul. Essentially, if we don't do anything to counter the stress that comes our way, we're hurting ourselves before we even realize it, because that chronic stress turns into background noise, kind of like that white noise we use to just drown out all those unwanted sounds. But after a while, we start to get used to that background noise. And in the meantime, if we don't do anything to address it, it damages our soul. And it even hurts our physical health, because all that stress, it's got to go somewhere, right? Those unwanted sounds could very well be alarm sounds warning us that we need to address and respond to this stress. And let's be honest, there are a lot of ways that we react to stress that just, they're not healthy for us. Which 
actually further intensifies that stress. Today, we're going to look at a passage to first ground ourselves in Scripture because that's where we find God's timeless truths for us to live by as Christ followers. After all, his word has guided generations for, for centuries, right, um, through extreme stress and turmoil. turmoil. And then we'll look at a stress relief plan to add to our toolbox that you've been getting Right? You've been adding that into your toolbox for our spiritual recovery, restoration, and renewal. Our passage this morning is from the Gospel of Mark. And while it appears in both Matthew and Luke, I chose Mark because it reads like an eyewitness account, almost like a film in rapid-fire succession, and it provides us with this inside look at what the woman in the passage was thinking. Let's read this first section. Jesus crossed the lake again, and on the other side, a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. Jairus, one of the synagogue leaders, came forward. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded with him, my daughter is about to die. Please come and place your hands on her so that she can be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A swarm of people were following Jesus, crowding in on him. And this woman was there who had been bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a lot under the care of many doctors and had spent everything she had without getting any better. In fact, she had gotten worse. Because she had heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his clothes. She was thinking, if I can just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. At this point, Jesus' notoriety was spreading because of all the miracles he was performing. And crowds of people, as you can see in this, in this artwork, um, he, they're surrounding him wherever he went. Jairus was a synagogue leader, perhaps one of the wealthiest and most important people in the city. And although his colleagues were seriously questioning Jesus and his validity, Jairus had faith that this is someone who could heal his child, his only daughter, from dying. As they headed toward Jairus' home where his daughter was, was in the midst of an emergency, a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years straight came up from behind Jesus to touch what other accounts say the hem of his garment, just the edge. We don't know exactly what her condition was. It was possibly a menstrual disorder or a hemorrhage that never fully healed. But what we do know is that she suffered from this disorder for 12 years. And Mark paints a vivid picture that she had done everything she could do to try to manage and be free from this condition spending everything she had, seeing every doctor she could, but things only got worse for her. She was suffering physically, but she was also suffering emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. Under Jewish law, a woman in her condition who was bleeding was seen as ritually unclean and impure, and that meant she was excluded from any social and religious settings. 
If people just even, if they just touched her, even her clothing, they would be considered impure and unclean. And they wouldn't be able to participate in any of these settings for a period of time. Childbearing would have been very difficult with her condition, given that she couldn't be touched. And if she were married, that would have been given her reason, her husband reason to divorce her in Jewish Pharisee tradition, especially since she wouldn't be able to produce any offspring. Though the text doesn't say this, we can reasonably assume she lived a lonely and isolated life for 12 years, most likely never married, possibly divorced, and without children. Can you imagine the chronic stress she lived with day after day trying to manage her condition without any support or any resources? Can you imagine what it was like for her to live with that narrative that she was impure and unclean, not knowing if this was something that she caused or wondering why God would inflict this condition upon her? And if you look at this picture, you see people looking at her with disgust because she's despised in the community. She could have thought, I shouldn't follow Jesus because I'm an outcast and I don't belong there. But instead, we see a glimpse of her faith, leaving her place of isolation and alienation, both physically and emotionally, to crouch and crawl through the crowds while desperately thinking, if I can just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. What are the narratives we've bought into that'll create stress, no matter what we do? For the woman, if she believed the narrative that she somehow did something to deserve her affliction, her shame would have kept her from finding Jesus. Narratives matter. The other day, my 12-year-old son said, Mom, I feel like we're wealthy. And I looked at him, just kind of curious. I'm like, okay, can you share more? And he said, well, we can just buy a $5,000 air conditioner when the one that we have just broke. And I responded, well, yeah, that's what an emergency fund is for. But I appreciated this narrative that he had. He feels like our family is wealthy because all our needs are met and we've saved enough over time to be able to build up an emergency fund for big purchases like an air conditioner. He also knows that not all families have the ability to do this. On the flip side, he could have had another narrative like, oh, that means I can't buy the basketball shoes I want or we can't go on that particular vacation anymore, or, or now I'll never get a cell phone like all my other friends have. We never have enough to do the things that I wanted to, right? Like, that could have been his narrative. But his narrative of what happened gave him contentment, peace, and even gratitude. Narratives matter. If a marriage has the narrative that we met when we were really young and didn't know better and got married too quickly, that narrative will keep coming up whenever there's stress in the marriage. Or another, another merit narrative might be, 
My parents don't care about me. And with this narrative, we'll find ways to verify our suspicions as a way of coping with our pain. What narrative is God inviting you to revisit in your life? Is there a relationship or a friendship in turmoil or distress? Is there a job that's just so stressful and overwhelming you're not sure how to make peace with it? It could be something that happened in the past or something that you're facing now or something that you're thinking about for the future. One tool that I have found really helpful is just by starting with this statement. I get to. Parenting is so stressful, but I get to be a mommy. These these narratives are just so important. Oh, my job is so stressful, but I get to help people. those Those are really simple examples, but you can see the difference in how narratives play a huge role in how we respond to stress. Revisiting narratives doesn't mean we're invalidating what we're feeling. It's learning to see our circumstances through a new lens because there are just things in life that are not in our control and not our responsibility to fix or figure out. Narratives either pull us away from Jesus or move us toward him. What do you think was the driving force? What do you think is the driving force that moves us towards Jesus? It's faith. It's what moved the woman who was bleeding, and it's what moved Jairus, the synagogue leader. Let's see what happens next. Her bleeding stopped immediately, and she sensed in her body that her illness had been healed. And at that very moment, Jesus recognized that power had gone out from him. And he turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? And his disciples, um, in Luke it says specifically it was Peter, his disciples said to him, "Uh, don't you see the crowd pressing against you? Yet you ask, who touched me? But Jesus looked around carefully to see who had done it. The woman, full of fear and trembling, came forward. Knowing what had happened to her, she fell down in front of Jesus and told him the whole truth. And he responded, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace, healed from your disease. Do you ever feel like your worries and concerns are too small for God to notice or care about? Those thoughts of comparative suffering creep in the loudest when we need God's care and his compassion the most. When we're feeling self-pity and despair, the example of this woman and the attention Jesus gave her, it informs us we all matter so very much. Even his disciples were annoyed that he would stop for this woman whose illness seems so trivial in relation to the dying daughter of an important community leader. And because they were in such a hurry, Peter made quite the sassy remark to Jesus. You're seriously asking who touched you? Everyone around you is touching you, and we've got a place to get to. But Jesus, he operates on a different timeline. He had a higher and bigger purpose in his mind. Someone who touched him 
and wanted to be close to him was different from all the other people pressing up against him because he sensed power go out from him, right? And when the woman so bravely replies to his question, who touched my clothes? What does he say? He first responds by calling her daughter because that is who she is to him. That is her identity. Someone who was lost and didn't have a family was now found and belongs to Jesus. Now, I don't have any daughters. Maybe one day I'll have a granddaughter. (laughs) But when I look at my children and I call them son, my heart is saying, you are mine. You are my child. And I will look after you and care for your needs. In a society where she was excluded, Jesus turning to her, stopping in the middle of that whole crowd and saying, you matter to me. Calling her daughter was a display of his tenderness, affection, and compassion. Jesus' interaction with this woman in public, it brought her healing to her public trauma because he wasn't ashamed to be seen or identified with her. Furthermore, when Jesus told her that her faith had healed her and to go in peace, he wanted to make sure she and the crowd understood, no, not, it wasn't the clothing that healed her because that was a superstition back then, right? Like, maybe it's his clothes that's, like, magical. But it was her faith. The healing wasn't just physical, but it was a manifestation of her salvation. The Greek word for heal is, is sozo, which means to save or ensure salvation. So she wasn't just physically healed, she was now spiritually saved, and she can go in peace. Shalom in Hebrew for, is, is the Hebrew word for peace, but it's much more rich in the Hebrew language. Peace for the Jewish people means wholeness and completeness and rest. Our spiritual journey doesn't end with just our personal salvation. It continues as we live into God's shalom for us, as we address our internal stress, and as we extend this shalom to our community and our world, where there is brokenness, trauma, stress, and pain. Our faith and the practice of our faith was never meant to be solely individual and private. Jesus' public healing and announcement enabled this woman to re-enter into normal social and religious life that she had been excluded from. And she had been excluded from all of these things for years. But she also, he also wanted to use her as a testimony of faith, as an example for all to follow, and as a way of teaching the community that he had the authority to heal, to save, and to make people whole and complete. Our faith and the practice of our faith is not just a private and personal experience. It's one to be shared in a community. Public confession and testimony play an important role in the life of the church. 
baptisms and testimonies. That's a great picture, huh? I love that picture. They build up the body of Christ and give us the opportunity to reflect on our own faith journey, to remember our baptism, and to give us hope that Christ is at work in our midst and inviting us to join him in that work so the world can experience his shalom. If it, it benefits not just the individual who's getting baptized and sharing their testimony, but also the community. In this pandemic, it's extremely hard to consistently practice our faith in community, whether in person or online. Coming to service or a life group or tuning in virtually join, or joining an online group, it takes a lot of discipline, intentionality, planning, and energy. And just me talking about it, it can sound really exhausting, right? But once that spiritual rhythm is in place, it'll become surprisingly life-giving in ways that you may not realize, and even life-giving for the people you show up with. It grounds us as individuals to stay connected to God, but it also knits us together as a community of God. Now let's look at the final part of this passage. While Jesus was still speaking with her, messengers came from the synagogue leader's house saying to Jairus, your daughter has died. Why bother the teacher any longer? But Jesus overheard the report and said to the synagogue leader, don't be afraid, just keep trusting. Then taking the child's parents and his disciples with him, he went to the room where the child was. Taking her hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means, young woman, get up. And suddenly, the young woman got up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. The emergency to save the daughter has turned into what happened, what appeared to be a tragedy, because she had died, and they were too late, because Jesus had stopped to heal this woman. But Jesus read Jairus' mind and tells him, not to be afraid, to just keep trusting. What Jesus wanted to do was to have Jairus trust in his timeline because God is sovereign and has authority over all things, even death. Can you imagine how frustrated Jairus must have been as he was urgently trying to lead Jesus to his daughter while Jesus took his time with this woman to heal her? Can you imagine the utter disappointment, anguish, and distress he felt when he learned from the messenger that his daughter had died? And what we learn from Jesus' response is that we can trust in his sovereign timeline. Our stress is greatly reduced when we learn to let go of our own timeline. Notice how I specifically mention letting go of timelines and not desires. Here are some examples. By this age, I hope to get married. Or by this age, I hope to have this number of children or accumulate this amount of wealth or buy a house or get this kind of job or this other degree. The list can go on and on and on. But as we grow, and mature as believers, though our desires are valid and it matters very much, 
we learn that the world doesn't revolve around our desires. It revolves around his good and perfect will for each of our lives. We can trust that God's timing, his thoughts, and his ways are going to be more trustworthy than our own. These two stories are so beautifully linked together, and I had a bit too much fun comparing and contrasting the two. It's interesting to see that in that in this, um, it's interesting to see that in contrast to the woman, Jesus didn't want Jairus' daughter, that healing, to be made public. He wanted it to be private. Even Jesus set boundaries for himself. He knew that this particular miracle would bring unwanted attention and distract from his ministry to people who wanted to follow him for the right reasons. Stress isn't ever going to go away, but we can commit to doing all that we can that's within our control while also trusting God with everything. All right, well, I want us to take a look at some uh, stress relief plan. I'm going to give us some ideas, some things that we can do this week. if you want to just put some of these things in practice right away. I'm part of a BIPOC healing circle, and I thought this was really helpful. just want to invite you all to get comfortable in your seats. This is a grounding technique. If you are finding that you are in this really extremely stressful moment, and you are just feeling it, like you're feeling it in your body, here's one thing that you can do. So just get comfortable. Do some deep breathing and get relaxed. Um, Try to get comfortable in the chair. I think we purposely try not to get too comfortable in chairs just in case people fell asleep. Um, But yeah, get comfortable. Now, I invite you to acknowledge five things that you can see around you. Look around at five things that you can see around you and just name them in your head. Now acknowledge four things that you can touch around you. Just take that in. Four things. Remember to breathe deeply as you do these things. Now acknowledge three things that you can hear around you. Now acknowledge two things that you can smell around you. Remember to breathe. Now acknowledge one thing that you can taste around you. This is a grounding technique that works. I encourage you to practice it. One thing that another thing that you can do this week is to breathe deeply. While worship team really led us in a great time of just deep breathing, um, we did not coordinate that. That was, that was the spirit. That was awesome. This week, I invite you to inhale, be still, and exhale, and know you are God. <laughs>
Let's do that together right now. Inhale, be still. Exhale, and know you are God. Do it again. Inhale, be still. Exhale, and know you are God. Last time. Inhale, be still. Exhale, and know you are God. That's from Psalm 4610. These are just different ways that we can just cleanse ourselves. Um, and notice your breaths too. Are they shallow? Are they deep? We want those deep cleansing breaths when we do this. Another thing is this might be very familiar is a feelings wheel. And it's not like you have to bust out this wheel every time, but naming, acknowledging the feeling and naming the feeling, it helps calm our anxiety. It helps us to face that emotion. And when we're able to face that emotion, acknowledge the feeling, we're able to pray to center our hearts and our minds and our souls. God desires for all of us to experience his shalom, his peace, his wholeness, and his completeness. Take a walk. You know, whenever we're physically, we're feeling stressed, um, stress is an emotion that just gets stored up. It's like stored up energy in your body that just needs to be released. So, yeah, take a walk or, or swim or go bike riding, whatever it is, just anything physical to release that stress. And then give your mind a break. Um, baking helps us to focus on the present by using our sight, smell, and touch, and, and it gives us something tangible to sort of feel accomplished, Right? Um, I love baking more recently, um, but it helps my mind to just stay focused on one thing. And it even allows me to wonder about things like, oh, I wonder how this would taste if I used a different kind of apple. And I've noticed, too, in my baking, um, as I'm baking, it, it makes me wonder, God, what are you up to? What, what is it that you're up to, why I'm going through this? And then lastly, to call on people to pray. I have a ministry care team that I turn to, to, man, I tell them everything, and they send me prayers my way, and I'm just so thankful. Like, when I share those prayer requests, and I know I can count on them to pray, all of a sudden, there's just this relief in my anxiety. If you're not sure who to turn to, you can email prayer at accesslive.org. We've got a, a team of people who are just committed to praying for people in our church. I'd like to invite the worship team to come up as we reflect on these questions. I'm going to give you all a few minutes to reflect on these questions. How does it feel to know that God sees you as daughter and son, that you're his and he'll take care of you? What are the narratives we bought into that'll create stress no matter what we do? What narrative is God inviting you to revisit in your life? How would letting go of your timeline help you manage stress? How is God inviting you to let go of a personal timeline and trust in his sovereign timeline? 
How does the woman's or Jairus' faith inspire you this morning? Is there something in the stress relief plan that you want to practice more of this week? I invite you to just take one or two of these questions just to think about it, reflect on it, and ask God, what do you want me to hear this morning? So I can learn to respond to stress with faith. service we're going to have a time where we're going to invite you to if you want prayer we're going to have some people up here um, who'd love to pray for you we're going to do it in a very safe way we won't physically lay any hands on you um, but we want to be able to carry um, the stress and be able to intercede on your behalf so yeah we'll have a time for that right now i'd like to invite you to stand up so we can say our sending prayer together Loving God, through all our years, let the church be a community where we learn about love and practice it, where we envision peace and work to build it, where we meet partners in faith who wish to abandon everything that cheapens our discipleship, where we discover gifts and offer them. May your spirit guide us toward joy and generosity. In Jesus' name, in the way of Jesus, amen.